Welcome to Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. I'm Trevor Perry Giles, the Executive Director of the National Communication Association. The National Communication Association is the preeminent scholarly association devoted to the study and teaching of communication. Founded in 1914, NCA is a thriving group of thousands from across the nation and around the world who are committed to a collective mission to advance communication as an academic discipline. In keeping with NCA's mission to advance the discipline of communication, NCA has developed this podcast series to expand the reach of our member scholars' work and perspectives. This is Communication Matters, the NCA podcast. Our guests on today's episode of Communication Matters, the NCA podcast, are current or past editors of NCA journals. Deanna Danels, Corey Floyd, Shiv Ganesh, and Ronald Jackson II join me to share their experiences as editors and to offer their thoughts on the rewards and some of the challenges that aspiring journal editors can expect. First, a bit more about our guests. Deanna Danels is a professor of communication and the Associate Dean of Academic Affairs in the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at North Carolina State University. Dr. Daniels is outgoing editor of NCA's Communication Education, which focuses on scholarship about communication and learning. Among other research areas, Dr. Daniels is published in the areas of teacher training, communication across the curriculum, pedagogy, and oral communication. Dr. Daniels is the author of Eight Essential Questions Teachers Ask, a guidebook for communicating with students. Hi, Deanna. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Trevor. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Corey Floyd is a professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Arizona. Dr. Floyd is a past editor of NCA's Communication Monographs, which publishes communication scholarship from a range of research areas, as well as a past editor of the non-NCA Journal of Family Communication. Dr. Floyd researches in the areas of health communication, family communication, and affection. Dr. Floyd is the author of 16 books and more than 100 articles and book chapters. Hi, Corey. Thanks for joining Communication Matters. Great to be here, Trevor. Shiv Ganesh is a professor in the Department of Communication Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Ganesh is a past editor of NCA's Journal of International and Intercultural Communication, which publishes research from a variety of perspectives and methods, including qualitative, quantitative, and critical approaches. Dr. Ganesh researches communication and collective organizing using digital technologies in the context of globalization. Dr. Ganesh is the author of Organizational Communication in an Age of Globalization, Issues, Reflections, and Practices. Hi, Shiv. Hi, Trevor. Good to be here. Ronald Jackson II is a professor of communication at the University of Cincinnati and a past NCA president, and I would note a new inductee into the NCA Distinguished Scholars Program for 2020. Dr. Jackson was co-editor of Critical Studies in Media Communication with current NCA president Kent Ono. Critical Studies in Media Communication publishes research on the media and mass communication from critical and cultural studies perspectives and Dr. Jackson researches in the areas of masculinity, identity negotiation, whiteness, and Afrocentricity. Dr. Jackson has authored 14 books, including Interpreting Tyler Perry, co-authored with Jamel Bell. Congratulations, and hi, Ron. Hello, thank you. Thank you, glad to be here. Okay, so prior to becoming a journal editor for NCA, 
all of you have extensive academic publishing records, but what were your perceptions of the whole scholarly publishing and academic publishing process prior to becoming an NCA editor? My perceptions were, of course, rooted in my experiences, which were uneven in terms of the quality of reviewer and editor feedback, not only from NCA journals, but other journals, and uneven in the time frame in which that feedback was given. I learned to be persistent. I learned to be resilient. I learned that it was okay to ask questions and to request clarification. And I think I learned in part the editor I wanted to be based on my experiences as an author, both stellar experiences. My very first publication experience was with an editor who went out of her way to be a mentor to me. And that framed subsequent experiences. So I learned who I wanted to be based on a mixed bag experience, but I learned kind of how to work my way through it. That's great. Anyone else? What were your perceptions of scholarly publishing and how did that factor into the decision to apply to be an editor? To be honest, you know, when I was reflecting on this issue the other day, it occurred to me that I have a distinct memory of feeling quite cynical about the process of academic publishing and peer review. And I think I was in a place in my career where I was an associate professor and I had sort of gone through the mill as it were and sort of published where I was supposed to publish, but kept thinking that, well, you know, is peer review really working? I had several experiences that, as Deanna says, were uneven. And even though I'd managed to put my work in print, I kept wondering, well, is this a process that is, that is worth it? Was it worth it to sort of get this four sentence review at the end of, you know, six months of sort of blood, sweat and tears on an article? One of the reasons that I remember wanting to be a journal editor was to actually try and make the review process better in a field that I cared about. And of course, I mean, the reality was something really different. I think one of the first things that I realized once I became an editor was the sheer amount of labor and care that people put into the peer review process on an everyday basis, and that the vast majority of reviewers actually really care about helping produce good work. So that was, it actually, the experience ended up giving me a bit more faith in peer review as a process. That's good to know. Ron, did you always want to be an editor? What factors were weighing on you as you decided to throw your hat in the ring for CSMC? Well, you know, Deanna and Shiv sort of touched upon a few things that I myself found to be part of my own experience. I started off with a somewhat imbalanced understanding of how academic publishing worked. I'd seen my professors do it, and once I finished college and decided to go out with my newly minted PhD and try to get my first tenure track job and have to publish, I was working at a place that prioritized the teaching more than research. And so research almost didn't matter. And so I had to sort of make sure that I carved out time for that. And I didn't quite understand fully how to do it well. And so I found that I needed to go to the journals 
and essentially study the journals as a way to understand the tone with which people were writing, to understand the way people structured their arguments. And then I had to download CVs from multiple people that were well-regarded within my particular area of inquiry and actually get a sense of where were they publishing and why were they publishing there. And, and so as I gradually came to the publishing world through a very interesting portal, which was somewhat detached from my academic experience going through the entire process of going to graduate school. But I didn't know I wanted to be an editor of a journal per se, but I had done a couple of special issues for journals and I had been on about 15 editorial boards and I reviewed for all kinds of other journals. So I kind of understood some things about it and I edited books. So I kind of got the idea at that point, but I just didn't know that I wanted to do it. So there were some very interesting factors that played into my decision. Did you discover that your duties as editor matched up with your expectations? No. (laughs) (laughs) Um, They told me that Critical Studies and Media Communication was the journal that had the most issues per year at the time. It did. And I had a general sense that it was going to mean more manuscripts coming my way. I didn't quite understand that there were between 250 to 300 per year that were coming my way. So it was almost one every day, every other day or whatever. So it it was a lot. (laughs) So so I think I didn't understand the workload. It was great that I had a co-editor and it was great that I had an awesome editorial assistant because she kept us going pretty smoothly through the process. And we really relied on her as a way to sort of think about desk rejects and stuff like that. But, you know, it was awesome overall. The structure was what really saved us. When you say the structure, Corey, maybe you could expand on that. Was your experience at Monograph similar to to Ron's in terms of your expectation as to what you were going to have to do as editor when the time came? A little bit, although I had edited before. And I think that... You know, I think that becoming an editor for the first time is, I imagine, like becoming a parent for the first time, in the sense that you have a certain set of expectations about what it's going to be, and then it happens to you, and those expectations don't always manifest in the way that you think they will. But what's really struck me over the years is how much that process has evolved. So the first time I was an editor, that was back when writers were still sending in five copies of a paper manuscript and you had to put them in envelopes and mail them out to reviewers. This was even before it was common to ask people, would you review? Mm -hmm. You would simply send them the paper and say, please review this. (laughs) And so now, of course, it's much different with the systems online. I think it's much easier. And so that's another way in which it really has evolved. And so I think going into monographs, I had a little bit better idea of what to expect, a little bit sharper vision maybe, because I had gone through my disorientation earlier, my disillusionment. Deanna, what do you think are some of the other big challenges that editors face? The biggest challenges you faced at ComEd and the challenges. Because I think Corey's right. It has gotten easier. There's less paper. There's less mailing. There's less copying. But those are replaced with other challenges. What are some of those other challenges? So I did not come into this role with any illusions 
about workload. I came in ready. I didn't know where I was going to find the time, but I built structures in my schedule to block out time. So I knew this was going to be three years that it was just an additional workload. The challenges for me might be unique to the way kind of I viewed my editorship and the particular time in which I became editor. I came into editing communication education as someone who really wanted to steer the ship in a bit of a different direction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think I was the first purely qualitative scholar to be an editor of communication education in, gosh, a very long time. And I brought an academic pedigree in history with me that was not necessarily the same as some of the other editors had brought and the readership. So I really came in saying, I want to broaden the readership. I want to broaden access for authors who may not see ComEd as a journal that they align with. I want to broaden the contributions of the pieces so that readers in rhetoric or critical com see ComEd as having something that can contribute to their scholarship. Mm-hmm. And it's a big ship to steer. So my challenges were, were mostly how do I, you know, maintain the top-notch quality, rigorous reputation that ComEd has and also open the doors for other forms of inquiry and scholarship to be celebrated and submitted and reviewed with care. And so I had to do a lot of talking to people who normally wouldn't see ComEd as a place to publish or a place to review for or a place to read. And I had to do a lot of marketing, if you will, and say, you know, no, we really, we want to do things that matter. And so I took very strategic steps to do that. And so, you know, outside of just there's a sheer amount of work that comes with an editorship, balancing those relational discussions with a very long-standing readership that I didn't want to lose. Right. But a new set of readers and authors that I wanted to feel included. And I, I think those were my primary challenges. So looking back now as an ex-editor or past editor, I guess, were you successful? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I just approved my final page proofs for my final issue. So this week is my like, oh, you know, this, I truly am done. Yes, I think I was successful. I, you know, I instituted a forum section. Three years ago, I thought, gosh, it'd be good to talk about contemporary issues in higher education. That was 2016 in November. And boy, sure enough, there were a lot of contemporary issues in K-12, higher ed, community college that have popped up over the last three years. And so building in forum sections that all of which had four to five authors, only one of which was someone I would consider a more traditional com-ed author, the rest of which we went out and talked to people. Mm -hmm. So now that was a very intentional choice. I, I do believe I was successful. I also... I'm very proud if I can plug the October 2020 issue. It's a full issue on autoethnography and narrative. Oh, this wow. is the first full issue in ComEd 
that explores these modes of inquiry and every piece is absolutely beautiful. It's on teaching failures. And we've got some pre-COVID submissions and post-COVID submissions. So I believe I was successful, but it had to be very intentional. I had Mm -hmm. to keep my eye on that ship. I had to spend extra time with authors that I knew I could get them there, but it would take a little bit of time and a little bit of work with reviewers to educate them on new modes of inquiry. What about you, Shiv? How would you measure the success of your editorship at JIIC? Well, all of that was retrospective. But attending to the issue of challenge, I think for me, the biggest challenge was making sure that I was able to stick to some of the goals that I had set for myself as an editor. And that's because there is a lot of everyday work. There are reviews to be identified. There are manuscripts to be copy edited. There are submissions to be processed. There's, you know, so there's an everydayness to editorial work that I think can sometimes overtake any ambitions or any aspirations you might have for the journal. And holding on to those was for me, in a sense, the biggest challenge. Um, just because I could get lost in just processing, you know? So for me, there were, I think, three or four goals that I set for myself as an editor. One of them was to increase scholarship from and about underrepresented areas in communication inquiry period. And so one area that we identified was Africa. So one of my priorities was to make sure that the journal encouraged submissions from and about Africa. And by the time I finished my editorial tenure, 14% of our published manuscripts were either from and about Africa. So that is something that I see as a success. Mm -hmm. I was also keen to, to feature publication on LGBTQ issues by LGBTQ scholars. And one highlight, I think, of my editorial tenure was the first special issue of an NCA journal devoted to queer communication theories and perspectives. And so that was a bit of a highlight as well. And that was something that I tried to be intentional about. And I think the third thing that I did try to be intentional about, and it eventually happened, even though it, like I said, it got lost in the mix for a while, was the desire to try and be even-handed and make sure that I was sort of representing the field in the journal, mm-hmm. right? So not privileging any particular epistemology, methodology, or theoretical perspective. And then when we did the analysis of what was eventually published in, in GIIC, as well as what was submitted, then we found that we had been fairly even-handed across quantitative methods, qualitative methods, and rhetorical slash textual methods. Mm-hmm. But yes, you know, so I think those are some of the things that we, that we did. But at the same time, remembering that that was important was the challenge. <laughs> you mentioned special issues. I think we did a podcast episode with the co-editors of a special issue of JIIC not that long ago. And it was similar to your Africa outreach initiatives. Their issue concerned communication in Southeast Asia. It was Shanak Sastri and Srivi Ramasumaranian. It was a great episode, but it illustrated, I think, this question of special issues and the value and the place that they hold in our journals. And yet, I don't know that Monographs actually has a history of publishing special issues that I recall. You know, it's one of our older journals. It's one of our more established journals. I think we've, NCA has been publishing Monographs since 1934, I believe. Do you think we might think about broadening it out and having some special issues, Corey? 
I don't know. I, I did one in three years. Okay. And, you know, I, I've edited a special issue before. I promoted the one that, that we did in monographs. And I sort of have a love-hate relationship with them. On one hand, they can be great vehicles for promoting a particular method, a particular epistemology, a particular population that needs promotion that may not be as represented or is emerging in a discipline and and could use the representation. On the other hand, I think that if a journal does too much of that, then it can really dilute the mission of the journal in and of itself, such that it becomes almost a balance between the journal as we know it and then every third issue, for instance, is something that deviates from that. So I think it's, a, it's tricky for an editor to, to make calls on that. And, and one thing I noticed when I took over monographs, I noticed this when I took over Journal of Family Com earlier, is that you start getting pitched special issue ideas pretty quickly. And I can remember at one point an author team sending me full special issue. They had all the papers. They simply sent it to me and asked me to publish it as a special issue. And I said, well, that's not really how that works. But, you know, when there's a change in editorship, people see opportunity to say, well, I want to I get my special issue in then. I, wanna, I want an issue devoted to the thing that I care about. And it's, you know, it's tricky. You have to be really strategic with it because it's the journal's resources and those are pages that then you're not giving to the scholars and the readers who make up the tradition of that journal. Mm -hmm. I wonder too, we sometimes rely, I think, on special issues as a mode of diversifying our journals. At NCA for the last, well, several years, certainly we've been very concentrated on the diversity of the publishing that we do and the authors that we publish and the editors and the like. And, you know, we've collected some data and we know the sort of, you know, information there. But Ron, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on how editors can foreground even more and separate maybe from special issues, although that's a good way to do it. But, you know, the work of non-white scholars, non-Western scholars, LGBTQ plus scholars, all those scholars that have been historically marginalized in the discipline. What can editors do specifically to encourage a broader range of publishing? Yeah, that's a really good question, a really important one. I have to say that even as we talked about earlier, what it takes to be a success as an editor, that was part of what I measured as, as my success was the extent to which we were able to diversify the authorship and diversify the range of topics that represented those that have been historically marginalized. And so I think that in terms of how editors can foreground the work of non-white scholars and of scholars that have been marginalized, I think you do that, you can do it in multiple ways. One way that I would recommend is through stating it up front through your editorial policy. I think people know it through your work that you're already doing. If you're really ingrained in doing critical scholarship or if you're, if you're already doing work on those populations that have been historically marginalized or underrepresented. But if you are a scholar who has not done that kind of work, but simply wants to make it a priority, you can do that as well through the editorial policy. I think having a particular mindfulness toward the diversification of the reviewers thinking about how you distribute your, your authors and your topics across different issues. Because, I mean, you can have I don't know, four issues a year for a journal. 
it would be great if there was a way to show the representation in the range of authorship. I think people are paying attention to that, and especially now. Mm-hmm. People are paying attention to it because they're looking at NCA and, and other publishers of journals and saying, hey, what is going to happen with respect to my future? And I think, I mean, even at the very beginning of my career, I noticed very early on that there was a seeming lack of equity among the kinds of topics and the range of authors that were actually publishing in the journal. And I was concerned about that. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think you can foreground through being mindful and purposeful around how you distribute the topics and diversify the authors and the reviewers. Well, the aims and scopes at Monographs is pretty well set, right? How does an editor in a journal where there may not be as much flexibility with the aims and scopes and revising that, how can an editor, Corey, do you think, reach out to those marginalized scholars, to those scholars who haven't been as engaged in academic publishing? I think one way is is messaging the observation that that venue is not off limits to you, even if historically it is felt that way. So it happens to marginalized scholars, it happens to young scholars as well, that they feel that that certain publishing outlets are simply not not for them or haven't been friendly to them in the past. And so I think there's a lot that an editor and an editorial board can do to to change that message and, and to let people know, no, we welcome your contributions, we welcome your ideas. Something that I, that I also thought about that can be important to populations of marginalized scholars, whether they are publishing in a journal or not, is to assist the process of their work being cited in that mm-hmm. journal. And one of the real challenges of being an editor, especially for a non-niche journal, a non-focused journal like Monographs is that, that receives such a wide variety of submissions, is that my own expertise is this big mm. compared to what gets submitted to that journal. And so you really rely on reviewers. And I think that editors can ask reviewers, if you see opportunity in a paper that you're reviewing to cite work by authors that's relevant to the paper, but, but work of authors who have historically been marginalized, please point that out. Please make that suggestion to the authors because that ultimately will benefit the people doing that work, whether they're the ones putting those publications in that journal or not. That's a great suggestion. I think often those sorts of impulses need to be brought forward to the reviewers and to the authors and and let them know that's fantastic. So moving forward, Deanna, what do you think we still need to talk about with regard to academic journal editing? What are some of the challenges that not just specifically ComEd or you as an editor, but the whole enterprise of academic publishing and scholarly publishing? What are some of the issues we're going to have to be have to be paying attention to, do you think? Yeah, I think the manuscripts that are submitted are a product of the resources, and by resources, I mean a number of different kinds of resources that authors have available to them. Uh And to the extent that we have stellar scholars without the mentoring networks, without the connections to the association, without those relational resources or even material resources to support their research, 
we are limited in the kinds of submissions we get. But I had several authors who it was clear to me did not have access to mentoring in ways that others did. Uh And so I was incredibly intentional in trying to fill those gaps and not immediately turn those authors away for things that some might say, well, you should have known that. And that took a very intentional, uh, that was an intentional decision on my part. And, and it took more time and it took more labor and it was labor well spent and I would do it again. And it took me a little bit to realize, oh, I've got to pay attention to some of these things and absolutely rely on my reviewers. But there are things that I had to pay attention to. Oh, okay. Well, I could easily dismiss this, mm-hmm. but I could also see if they can get there mm-hmm. if I give them a little mentoring. And so I just think as a, you know, as a whole, recognizing that what we get submitted, it's already privileged in many ways. Mm-hmm. And then what gets accepted is even more privileged. And I don't know how to crack that nut other than I tried very hard to not be dismissive of things that, that I could have been. I tried to give authors the opportunity to get there and tried to provide the mentoring that they needed and call the reviewers information. So that would be my big thing. You know, I, I think there's a lot of folks out there who have unbelievable ideas and who just don't have access to the networks and the resources mm-hmm. to get pieces to a point where they even see themselves as wanting to submit and then to where they're willing to be resilient enough to work through the review process. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was in graduate school at Indiana, Martha. Watson, who was an editor of QJS, came to give a talk or whatever. And she did a little workshop about submitting to journals. And one of the things she said was, and this is an example of what you're talking about, that sort of level of informal mentoring that you can sometimes get. And her advice was, take your ego out of your writing. And I think that's really hard to do, but that stuck with me. And I think that's so important. I'm also concerned, and maybe Shiv or Ron... I'm concerned about the material resources that Deanna alluded to. I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing and the trends we're seeing in this COVID environment is that women are submitting to journals over this period far less than men are. I'm worried, I guess, looking forward a year or two down the road about some of these material resources and the impact of this current context on journal publishing. I don't know. Ron, Shiv, do you have any thoughts on that? I mean... Sure. I just want to sort of echo and appreciate Deanna's comments. I think that one of our biggest challenges is really moving from seeing journal publishing in journals as an exclusive process to one that is actually deeply inclusive. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, as we've all seen, that there are continuing and unnecessary tensions between diversity and excellence that, I mean, those things are things that I think that we're only now coming to grips with as a field. And it's once we do that, that I think that the enterprise, if you will, of journal publishing will actually sort of become more deeply inclusive. That said, I think there are certainly some things that, that journal editors could do in the current era to address those very material constraints that you 
alluded to. So for instance, I've seen some journal editors of MCQ or critical departures in qualitative research quite literally throw open the door to perspectives and to opinion pieces and to fairly quick scholarship about COVID, about diversity and about inclusion. And I think those moves are pretty important. Mm -hmm. And that's because at points like this, we have to make sure that we allow and enable marginalized and minoritized groups to see themselves in our scholarship. Mm -hmm. So I, I see some of our journal editors do that in the field, though not necessarily at NCA. And I think that that's a really, really important thing. That's something we'll, we'll uh, certainly keep in mind. I, I know we've been working hard with all of our editors to talk about, and that's a big step, right? To even talk about these issues of inclusion and, and then you load COVID on top of that and that becomes a, an additional challenge. I guess in thinking of a sort of wrap up here, is this all worth it? We live in an era of disinformation and misinformation and information overload. And what does editorial stewardship and how does the publication of scholarship and communication matter? I'll try to address that. Um, first, I, I just want to say that being an editor is probably one of the most awesome experiences one will have in their life. And, and I don't mean awesome as in it's easy or it's without its own labor. Um, <laughs> I mean, awesome as in it's a magnificent responsibility for the sustaining and the advancing of our field. And that when we serve in this capacity, we really have the opportunity to not only just advance new knowledge, but to figure out a way that we can move our knowledge as we know it to the center of our everyday lives to, to what it means to be active in the popular culture. And I think a lot of times we think that our scholarship is just something that's in a journal somewhere or that's been published in a book that no one will read, but, <laughs> but you can actually have that same scholarship be advanced into the center of conversations around COVID-19 or around the global civic unrest or, or what have you. And that the more that we can do that through our journals to make our scholarship increasingly more relevant, I think the more that we will find just the tremendous rewards that not only we'll experience as a discipline or a field, right, but also that the authors will experience even as they are moving toward promotion, tenure, or, or whatever personal or professional goals that they might have for themselves. So I'm, I mean, I think it's just an awesome opportunity. And I think going forward in this era of misinformation, I really do think that we are tasked with, with a tremendous responsibility but we want to pass the torch to others who are equally as enthusiastic about trying to meet this challenge. Mm -hmm. So I think it's awesome. That's great. Corey, do you think it's worth it? Or should we keep doing this? Yeah, I do. I do. Ron sort of took the words out of my mouth. I was, I was really thinking about how often as authors, we feel like we pour our heart and soul into our work and, we triumph when it gets published in a journal and then it sits there and no one ever reads it and it affects the world in exactly zero ways. And that's kind of a hollow victory. That's, that's a little disheartening. And one thing that's been great to see in the last several years is efforts on the part of NCA and on the, sometimes on the part of, of just individual journal editors who've been really savvy about making sure that when important perspectives, important findings appear in that journal, that they get publicity, that they 
belong to the larger cultural conversation where, you know, it's so hard to be heard and it's so easy to find really low quality information or misinformation. I think that's something that we can focus on as a discipline that will keep the process worth it, is that as we're doing good work, we make sure there are mechanisms for getting that work into the public conversation where it can do some good and where it can be something that people think about and it can be an antidote to fake news and it can, it can serve the function that knowledge and perspective is meant to serve. You know, I've been reflecting on this because I just wrote my final piece for the last issue and being a journal editor was to date the best professional decision I have made. I have grown in ways that I couldn't have grown in other positions. I have learned probably more than I've taught, although I've really tried to mentor. And, you know, this journal kind of moved in and became part of my life for three years. And I celebrated with it and struggled with it and pushed it and pulled it and prodded it and nudged it. And now I feel like I've packed it up and moved it off to to college, if you will, <laughs> right, right, right. To, or to the next place. And to the extent that I might have had a small piece in contributing to a conversation that matters and helping others have their voice heard in ways that matter, all of those hours and structures and spreadsheets and emails, they, they pale in comparison to just the honor of being able to work with authors and reviewers and to really put something out there into the conversation, some of which will be picked up, some of which might not be. But to be a part of that has been truly a great honor for me. And that is a great place to thank you all for these insights. And I think on a broader level for the mentorship that this conversation and that I know all of you pursue in your day-to-day lives in terms of mentoring future scholars to be not just better authors of scholarship, but to potentially think of themselves and see themselves as editing an academic journal. And I think that's very important. So I want to thank you today for being on Communication Matters the NCA podcast and listeners, I hope that this conversation has inspired you to think about seeing yourself in an editorial role. So thank you all very much. This was great. Since 1915, NCA has published the latest scholarly research in communication. Currently, NCA publishes 11 scholarly journals that are venues for the most current research across a wide range of the communication discipline. NCA provides its members with free access to the current and archived electronic editions of all of our journals. This is especially important at a time when many academic libraries are reducing or eliminating their journal subscriptions and when all of us are trapped at home as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So be sure to check out the latest in NCA's journals at natcom.org NCA hyphen journals. That's natcom dot org slash nca hyphen journals. NCA's Publications Council is seeking applications for editors-elect for six of NCA's journals. 
The newly appointed editors will begin processing manuscripts in late 2021 or early 2022 and will oversee the volumes published in 2023 through 2025. Please visit natcom.org slash 2020-journal-editor-calls. That's natcom.org slash 2020-journal-editor-calls for specific calls for these editorial positions at the following NCA journals. Communication Monographs, Communication Teacher, Critical Studies in Media Communication, First Amendment Studies, Quarterly Journal of Speech, and the Review of Communication. And listeners, make sure you tune in to our next regular episode of Communication Matters on October 1st. The episode will address civil rights, the passing of the civil rights generation, the new civil rights movement, and issues related to diversity, equity, inclusion, and Black Lives liberation. The episode features Robin Boylorn, Associate Professor at the University of Alabama, Megan Parker Brooks, an associate professor at Willamette University, and Armand Towns, an assistant professor of rhetoric and communication studies at the University of Richmond. Be sure to engage with us on social media by liking us on Facebook, following NCA on Twitter and Instagram, and watching us on YouTube. And before you go, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to listen in as we discuss emerging scholarship, established theory, and new applications, all exploring just how much communication matters in our classrooms, in our communities, and in our world. See you next time. Communication Matters is hosted by NCA Executive Director Trevor Perry Giles and is recorded in our national office in downtown Washington, D.C., The podcast is recorded and produced by Assistant Director for Digital Strategies, Chelsea Bowes, with writing support from Director of External Affairs and Publications, Wendy Fernando, and Content Development Specialist, Grace Hebert. Thank you for listening.